Nate Patron is a longtime music critic whose writing has appeared in publications such as Pitchfork, Stereogum, Spin, and his hometown Twin Cities late alt-weekly City Pages. His first book, Bring That Beat Back, How Sampling Built Hip-Hop, was a best music book of 2020 by Kirkus and Rolling Stone, The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies from Rock and Roll to Synthwave, is his new book. Where we get into the link between film and songs, Nate examines the past 50 years of film to show the cultural symbiosis between movies and pop music. Here's our What We're Reading conversation with Nate Patron. First of all, we are talking about pop music specifically. We know movies have a lot of um, really wonderful theatrical or orchestral um, music to it, um, scores rather, but we're talking about pop music. Um, when you're using a popular song in a movie, there is a group of people who have heard that song in order to have that association with it versus that group of people who haven't heard that song. Um, can you talk about the difference, what are each getting out of hearing this particular song in a particular film? One example I like to think of is The Harder They Come. Uh, that film was a lot of people's literal, at least in the United States, uh, their introduction to reggae music. And the catch with that was that it was a lot easier to get the soundtrack than it was to see the movie. The movie was kind of a midnight movie for a while it was you know a limited release but the soundtrack which was one of the first really successful albums on island records sold like hotcakes you could get it everywhere it was like a road trip staple in my family so by the time i'd actually seen the harder they come i was you know very familiar with the entire soundtrack and so it was a kind of a moment where i was able to finally sort of see where these songs kind of fit in the narrative of the film and for other people like i'm sure that that like seeing the film for the first time was their introduction to this entire genre of music so they have this kind of different association that's a lot more tied into the film and the performance of jimmy cliff and the whole uh, milieu and the storyline of you know the rise and fall of this sort of uh, outlaw singer so and there's one other thing that I really love about The Harder They Come that cracks me up. It kind of breaks the fourth wall in a really interesting way because Jimmy Cliff plays a fictional character uh, who also just so happens to look and sing exactly like Jimmy Cliff. And so we go on to watch his character sing and record a new Jimmy Cliff song, you know, The Harder They Come, the title track. Uh, and then as he you know, becomes an outlaw and he's on the run, you know, we see this character doing business well, Jimmy Cliff's actual song, uh, You Can Get It If You Really Want, plays on the radio. Now, we don't see Jimmy Cliff's character recording this song. You just it's a, it's a different Jimmy Cliff. So it's almost sort of like this strange parallel universe version uh, of, of a person listening to himself. So are things like this, do you think more of a director's... Um fun little easter egg or what narrative purpose could that fulfill to to have that that particular song play during that particular scene sometimes it's a purposeful little joke sometimes it's a very happy accident another happy accident i like to think about is um like apocalypse now uh, francis ford coppola uh had basically 
stumbled across the idea to use uh, the Doors song, The End, uh, when he was just, you know, kind of in a down period. I mean, it was a notoriously uh, complicated shoot, just riddled with fiascos. So in one of these down times, he just took a moment to you know, watch some footage he'd shot earlier. And, you know, the Doors' first album was just sitting right there and he put it on and he came to the idea that it would be really funny to start a film with the song The End <laughs> over the opening, just as a kind of a funny little juxtaposition. But from there, it kind of grew into this extremely effective sort of uh, tableau of the kind of like intense, literally like apocalyptic, you know, movie we're about to we're about to see. I'm talking with music critic and Minnesota writer Nate Patron about his new book, The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies, From Rock and Roll to Synthwave. And Nate, I think about this a lot. Is there a song that you think is just really overused in movies? Yeah, I, I remember a lot of those, uh, even when I, from when I was a kid. It's like, oh, okay, how many times are we going to use James Brown's I Got You, I Feel Good? I wrote about easy writer for the book but i chose to write about the pusher instead of uh instead of born to be wild because i think one of the reasons born to be wild got so overused is because it like hit as a sort of funny little nostalgic counterpoint uh that people could use sort of ironically you know it's like oh it's it's this real tough you know, biker rock anthem, but we can use it to score, you know, a little kid wreaking havoc or, or <laughs> something, you know, kind of kind of silly like that. Uh, it's sort of like this sort of exciting song that was, you know, reduced over time to this wild hogs midlife crisis cliche. Although it, I will say very effective usage in uh, Albert Brooks' uh, Lost in America. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the funniest gags uh that kind of riffs off the whole easy rider mythos. So, yeah. So you're touching on a good point. Um, not only is music used to create an atmosphere or, or to create a mood music is often used as just a gag, just um, something happens in the film and then the, the needle drop. And then that song kind of is the punchline. Yeah. One of my favorite recent examples uh, was in Megan where this you know evil android you know robot girl goes on a rampage and just put on this like really sleazy late 70s disco song walk the night by this group the scat brothers that's kind of like a gag in itself even though it's also just like really works because it's just such a startling kind of moment that's that's half like triangulates cool silly and horrifying it's 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 pretty stark but um yeah, I think just the just the way that a song can just have that really immediate blunt emotional impact can really work well as comedy as well as you know horror or action or you know romance or pretty much any other genre. There's a genre for every song and a genre for every film, and when you kind of juxtapose those two in a way that either really streamlines the two or sets up a really funny clash, it can really be a powerful thing. In your book, you talk about when films really did start kind of using popular music more. Do you have a sense for how music has changed or um, do do you think musicians create songs a little differently now? 
because of the popular use of popular music in films? I mean, that's one thing that kind of struck me, like when I wrote about the movie Drive and the whole synthwave movement that kind of coalesced sort of around that film's whole aesthetic, a lot of that really is kind of driven, no pun intended, uh, by musicians who really sort of visualize themselves as making their own kind of like music as cinema. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that one of the real big cultural touchstones for this scene is John Carpenter, who's, who's you know, famous for both. I mean, he's actually like been going on tour playing his music. Some of it's soundtracks, some of it's just his own compositions. And so I think people really, especially when they're working in instrumental forms of music, often, I think, have this sense of really wanting to evoke something very specific using an abstract sort of sort of means. And so that's how we get a vibe, so to speak, from from a song, because it draws from previous associations and tries to build some of its own with uh, kind of like a, the sort of baked in context and knowledge of what these songs mean. So, Nate, do you have a favorite movie where you just ended up loving what songs they chose and how they ended up using those songs in the movie? I think just to to really focus on one is is really hard but i think like i mean i didn't do a dedicated chapter to martin scorsese uh, i kind of I, I put him in the uh, in the bonus section just because you know he's sort of the patron saint to this whole exercise and i don't really need to belabor it you know how good he is but uh goodfellas i think is where he really peaked in those terms because that the whole scene based around well starting off with Harry Nelson's jump into the fire. I mean, it was put together in a way like, you know, Scorsese and, you know, his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, really kind of put together something that was the closest any movie's suite of adapted songs ever got to feeling like an actual DJ set because it cuts back and forth and with like this really impeccable timing. And it just, you know, mixes and transitions and doubles back for this, you know, real perfectly timed to maximum impact instead of just letting the songs play out and putting some breathing room between them. So yeah, it feels like something that can't actually exist without this particular interplay of music and film. Nate Patron's new book is The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies, From Rock and Roll to Synthwave. It's what we're reading. I'm Tammy Bobrowski. 